Welcome to the 30th chapter of the Perthian Chronicles. I'm Ryan Morano, and today in the author's chair, we have someone very special and dear to my artistic practice. Angela Punch McGregor, the actor, teacher, director, and naturopath. Angela holds a Bachelor of Dramatic Art from the National Institute of Dramatic Art, and some of her colleagues included Anthony Hopkins, Mel Gibson, and Bill Hunter. As a teacher, some of her students included Kate Blanchett and many graduates of WAPA and NIDA, including myself. Angela's awards include a Robert Helpman Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, two Australian Film Institute Award nominations, two Australian Film Institute Awards, and a London Daily Telegraph Award. And some of her most notable projects include The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Newsfront, We of the Never Never, and Terra Nova. Angela, welcome. Hi, Ryan. Ryan, you missed one award, but I won't hold it against oh, you. Oh, what? <laughs> no! <laughs> I thought I did all my... Sorry, I, I shouldn't have been counting, but... Oh, well, well, what is it? I got three AFIs. Three AFIs! Now, well, this is someone else, because I was, I was, doing, I was doing a Googling right, and this is the scariest thing, uh, uh, particularly about researching yourself. I found there's this website called... Oh, who's dating who? Oh, and you had a I'm profile. I'm on that, am I? You're on the profile. Who was I dating? That's well, they, more important than the awards. Well, yeah, they, they were saying that they were saying your age or your star sign, all this information. <laughs> it was kind of scary, and they said you were single and blah blah blah. Really? It was really weird. But who was I dating? No one. They oh. said you're free. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had any phone calls. It was, it was really weird. Right? Be my star sign. It might be my age. It said Sagittarius. Oh, oh that's not right either. Oh, well, oh, the whole thing's there's, wrong. There's two of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can clarify some things. Well, it's good because I've got some questions and I'm very curious to know, did the arts find you? Uh, did acting find me? It's a really nice way to put it. Uh I, I can start by saying that I started very early. So I was 13, at, just into high school. Mm. And as I speak to you, I'm saying, yes, I think it did find me. Because like so many actors, you go in, you know, through the, the high school doorway or, you know, some kind of association during high school and you find a love that probably will never leave you. Yeah, so that's what's happened. Yeah, I was playing a send-up of Romeo and Juliet, and I was Romeo, and looks like my vanity started way back then because I just couldn't resist the laughs that I was getting. Yeah. And I thought, gee, this is a really nice way to spend your days. And I continued with drama lessons, and we did a couple of plays, and, yeah, I just kind of went into NIDA from there and I never thought about anything else yeah. I guess like so many actors you find a strength and a confidence and a, a personal expression um, that you've never experienced before uh, I, I think probably it's to do with feelings and, and the freedom of expressing whatever feeling and, and getting acknowledgement yeah. for it rather than you know criticism which perhaps we were getting too much from our parents our, <laughs> Our post-war parents. I don't know. But yeah, the short answer is it did find me. Absolutely. Now, these questions, rearranging them, they, they all, they come, they're, they, they, yeah, they're quite a mixed bag. And maybe I should have sent them. But actually, I'm quite happy that I, 
I, I find the best way for doing this type of show, as it were, um, I don't like letting the guest know of the questions. It's fine by me, yeah. Um, I find, I don't know, I, I find the answers more genuine and, and more relaxing too. Yeah. But there's nothing salacious or anything. As long so, as you don't ask me who I'm dating. <laughs> <laughs> Can performing the classics, such as Shakespeare, be a dangerous activity? Dangerous for the performer? Mm. Uh, physically? Emotionally? Mm. Physically. Yeah. Yes, you can always fall off the stage and you can always be <laughs> pierced by a sword. Um, I think the reason why I wrote this question because as, 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 as I was doing my Googling, because to supplement that question, do you, for me, you must have a love for the classics. I do. I do. And the one thing I'm trying to remember, and I'm not sure if you can tell us this story because I remember in class you told us of this, this story, but I'm not sure if you're allowed to. Um, so this will get all cut out. And okay. Don't worry. I, I remember there's this because doing there's this. It is there is a public knowledge of. I think there's some weird article that I read that you, because one of your I think major roles. Speaking of Romeo and Juliet, you were Juliet to Mel Gibson. Oh, I know what you're going to talk about. Yes, yes, um, yes. I don't know about dangerous, but it was um, it was quite a humiliating experience. You're talking about working with Mel Gibson. Mm. And yeah, we did. We both did Romeo and Juliet together, uh, mm. just as his fame and um, meteoric fame was was soaring skywards with with all the girls screaming and yelling for him. Um, and I think I do remember telling you that on the school matinees it was just mayhem. <laughs> you could barely get through the play, um, and particularly as I was Mel Gibson's girlfriend in the play, I wasn't very popular. Mm. So. <laughs> Something I didn't anticipate, but when it came to the death scene and, and um, poor old Juliet falls on her sword, um, mm. the girls in the, at the Wednesday matinees used to cheer because uh, <laughs> that was that's the horrible. end of Mel Gibson's girlfriend. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. So, yeah, that was, um, that was a bit trial by fire, but, hey, it's all part of it. For you, do you think... I'm just curious, are you one... Because there are sort of two schools of thoughts when performing, you know, the classics and, and talking about Shakespeare. There is, there is that school of thought where nothing can be changed, touched or altered in the text. It has to be played verbatim. And then there's a, the, the other school of thought where Shakespeare needs to be readapted, changed, cut, gender roles reversed. Where do you sit with that? Yeah. Um, well, having been at, at Wapparator Drama School for, for a decade or so... We're cutting and changing all the time to best facilitate a, a student performance or a student learning uh, situation. So I've been cut and pasting Shakespeare, for instance, for, for over 10 years with great delight. And firstly, it helps the students, but I think there are also situations where Shakespeare spoke not only in verse, but he spoke at great length about many subjects. And in Shakespeare's time... Um, there were no screens and people went to... And they actually spoke about going to hear a play, not see a play. Mm. Um, so there was a different sort of audio sensitivity and expectation, I think, from writers, certainly way back then, um, Shakespeare's era. So I have no problem with cutting, yeah. particularly if it's a good cut. And as they say in the theatre, a short play is a good play. Yeah. A short show is a good show. Uh, 
No, I have no problem at all. Also, we've got gender inequity with Shakespeare, so there's lots of um, gender, you know, parity to be looked at, particularly for students and also for professional performers. So I, I think Shakespeare in particular is ripe for, for cutting and pasting. Mm. It, it really wasn't dialogue or conversation as we have it now, you know. The pace, the, the whole verbiage was so different. Um, and, yeah, we should be making it accessible. That said, the poetry is so extraordinary that I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't go and see a contemporary translation of Shakespeare. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't be interested in that. Quite handy to have when you're directing. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's not forget the, the sacredness of the, of the poetry. I was reminded... Because I'm, I'm sort of prepping. I've got a show idea to do like a sort of structured Shakespeare improvisation show thingy, and one of my because one of my acting heroes, and it's quite a, a weird one, um, because people don't remember this guy, Sir John Gilgood, and he wrote a book called Acting Shakespeare, and there's a there's a bit where he's talking about where he himself, this great figure, didn't make at first in the '60s didn't make sense of the sonnets. He could never really particularly understand them. And he said he took great comfort when uh, Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, yeah, George Bernard Shaw said, um, in Shakespeare's great speeches, you don't have to necessarily worry about the language as such, the text, or the meaning of it. The thing you have to worry about is the sound mm. it makes. Mm. And I find that a very interesting concept, <clears throat> how talking of language and the sound and, uh, you know, the, the words, how, you know, yes. that is. And it's interesting, um, I was actually listening to Gilgood and Laurence Olivia do the yeah. same, do to be or not to be. It's on YouTube. Yeah. And you can, you can get all these recorded versions of, of, of these very, very fine actors in the 50s and, and 40s. Gilgood, there was always contention as to who was the greater actor, Gilgood yeah. or Laurence Olivia, and they were both very different. Gilgood had such enormous tonality, colour... Um, musicality in his mm. delivery so I can imagine him thinking that yeah. <laughs> and, and concentrating on that yeah. um, I don't think he quite had the emotional connection and uh, complexity of, of psychological delivery that Olivia had and that's why yeah. Olivia was so out there and so, so different I mean people don't think that now when they listen to Olivia yeah. they go oh it's, it's old hat you know <laughs> but back then it was like psychologically edgy you know mm. Uh, so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think we do have to get closer and closer to the human heart and, and, and human relationship and, and the subtleties and the, the subtext of what's not said, and that's exactly where drama has been going in the last you know, decades. But I, on the same note, I think it's sad that that musicality mm. um, has also gone. The voices that had to reach, you know, in a 2000-seater and they don't anymore... Yeah. Is a sad loss, I think. You know, the, the sounds were quite beautiful. Did you ever need a special technique or method to handle or act along with established performers? I'm just very curious because for me, well established that they don't that those performers don't need to necessarily be celebrities, as it were. But what I'm interested in going to directing and speaking to uh, Tamara Cook about. You know, mm. when we had lessons with her about it. There's always a bit of caution when dealing, say, for example, with a, a middle-aged actor who is established. And if you're trying to direct them, you should just... 
the, the, the sort of advice was sort of, you know, just sort of let them be, in a sense. I'm just curious, you know. Well, I think my personal view of that, the politics of the rehearsal room, let's call it, hmm. I don't think anyone should be treated with kid gloves mm. for the wrong reasons. And I think, too, one should be careful of labelling anyone about who they are yeah. or what they might be. I've seen very seasoned performers put themselves onto the rehearsal floor with great humility and abandonment and creativity and imagination. Um, and I've also seen them very guarded and very stuck in their ways and very stitched up. So, And I've also seen the same from young performers. So I don't think the label of the seasoned performer is probably necessarily helpful. I do think for a young director and, and somebody like yourself going forward, mm. that area of the profession can be scary because yeah. you, you, you're trying to help somebody who you think, oh, they, they probably know more than me and yet I'm trying to help them to a performance. Mm. So I think it's, um, it's probably a good hurdle for, for young mm. directors to, to get over because it really is about the work and it's about the truth mm. and it's the truth as you see it. But the young director needs to have the language. Yeah. The, the young director needs to have perhaps a multiplicity of language and tools so that they can get to a straightforward, honest relationship with that actor. Because it, you know, politically, I think it is an issue. Mm. I think it is a people skills issue. But I don't think it's helpful to say, to label anyone. Yeah. And say, oh, you're probably like that, therefore yeah. I won't go near you. I, I like the, tr the triangle image or chart of, of creating in that, that there's the bottom line, you've got the director and the performer at that end, and at the apex of the triangle, you've got the work. Mm. And it should never be going along there. Yeah. It should always be going towards there. So uh, I, I think I know what you're saying, mm. but I think it's good to dispel those thoughts in your head as well. How did you discover the science of naturopathy? I was very ill back uh, in the 90s. I stupidly thought I could do a singing audition for a big musical that was coming up. Um, and I actually couldn't. I, I didn't have the singing skills. But I, I fancied the role so much and uh, I thought I'd give it a go. Yeah. Anyway, um, in my overzealous way, I, I overpracticed. Um, I got uh, a viral infection and then that infection spread right through my head and my sinuses. I, was, I just wasn't up to doing the audition. So... I panicked and I, I took too many antibiotics for this particular infection and I actually got very sick from it. Jeez. Yeah, I, I, I went down into an area where I had chronic fatigue and, you know, digestive problems and all sorts of things went wrong. And I, I sort of went beyond the medical profession. They couldn't solve it. And I found um, a wonderful naturopath who still operates in Sydney, northern Sydney, and uh, recommended by somebody who said he'll he'll get you listen to him he'll get you well and he did and I became a bit of a convert to it yeah and my interest in the theatre kind of waned for a number of years I took myself off and got my diploma in nutrition and all the rest of it and I started practicing with him actually oh because I um I found it an alternative way to medicine that was actually much more scientific than I had thought I hadn't known. Um, all the wonderful 
pharmacologists and, and people who had entered this area of healing. Um, and I still have a great belief in it. I don't practice anymore, but um, yeah. And look, I think my mind is a bit scientific anyway. Ah. I think the fact that I, I, don't, I don't perform anymore and I adore teaching and I think I adore it. I, firstly, I love being with, with the young and the new generation, mm. but I love analysing something. Yeah. I love getting to the truth of something in an analytical way. So there's a, there's a bit of a scientist up the back there, I think. <laughs> you had quite a, a pro, prolific career from the get-go. And I'm curious to know if you ever crossed paths with Ruth Cracknell. I did. I knew Ruth personally. Yeah. Not everybody knows, but Ruth had a great love of art mm. and... Um, picture work and and she ran a framing shop with her husband in uh, I, I did not know that yeah in sydney uh for many many years and uh we lived quite close to her shop uh, and through various you know friends in the industry we we got to know her and she she's framed a lot of our pictures that we still have <laughs> yeah i did do a couple of i did a film with her i'm trying to think if i was on stage with her but, I, I, yeah, I certainly have worked professionally, but um, Ruth had a very, very uh, sophisticated and sensitive uh, appreciation yeah. of, uh, of art. So I, I find that because, um, and when my dad listened to this, because we're big, big fans of, you know, mother and son. Right. And she's one of my influences of why I, I, I sort of do still pursue acting. Because I, I find that show, Mother and Son, so fascinating how... They never touched, because I imagine watching it now, it still holds up today, watching mm. it now and personally with our family experience, you know, dealing with someone who was quite old and frail. Yes. They never touch anything on illness. It was very, and for me, I thought Ruth Cracknell was performing King Lear every single episode. She was. <laughs> but it's just a great, because her comic, the timing and the, it's just so much, you can get so much from and learn from that performance so much, you know? She was a, a very special, intelligent, seasoned artist, mm. um, much loved. Did you know that the night she died, yeah. they took all the lights out of the opera house for three minutes? Did you know that? They, no. they dimmed the lights, which I, I don't know if they've ever done that for a performer before yeah. in Sydney. And I, I just thought that was a beautiful thing. All the lights went off in the whole... Oh, that's beautiful. In, outside and inside the building. Um, she was very much loved there because yeah. she performed so frequently there. My, my other friend, um, Gary MacDonald, you know, who was yes, in the show, yes. I, I heard about Mother and Son through him because I did quite a long season with him in a David Williamson play. And he spoke, they had a great love for each other, yeah. and he spoke about their, their personal friendship, their professional friendship. And I, I gather from what he said that the success of the show kind of finally was happening because of those two people just having a trust and respect, yeah. both very fine comedians and, and in different sorts of ways. And I think there was such a gigantic affection and respect for each other's work. The show was successful in, subliminally in that yeah. way. So that might be interesting to you, um, yeah. that I, I wasn't kind of connected with the show, but, but I heard via Gary, you know, the great, great collegiate res respect they had. Well, it's even fascinating because you, cause it's funny because... I think this is known because I remember watching this program with Gary McDonald and this, uh, what's it, the, the ABC, not Compass, Inside Story, 
talking about his depression. Or oh, anxiety, yes. sorry, anxiety and his work with Beyond the Blue. That's right. And I remember he had this very interesting yeah, relationship with Ruth. But I find it uh, fascinating how... Because he had Norman Gunston before Mother and Son. And he it's did. funny how how he had to sort of play the straight man, as it were, and he's, and he ha- and he's known for being the wild... In a, in a sense, a wild and wacky character of Norman Gunston. Mm. I've, I find that very interesting. And, and watching yeah, Gary's performance and Henry Schrepp's uh, performance as well, you know, yeah, it's a very serious, dry character, Arthur, you know? It was a great idea oh. for a series, I think. And then I think the casting was just magic. It was just one yeah. of those things that, that, that came together. Um, I mean, I, I personally think Gary's Norman Gunston is one of the great great comedic performances of, of all time yeah it's, it's really is so original and I, I loved working with Gary because I if anyone could have you know lauded around and, and and thrown his weight around it would be somebody like him and he never does mm. and if he's got any obsession or ambition or vanity it just goes into the work I've never seen anyone work so hard I watched him in the run of David Williamson's play that we did and if he found that there was a moment that wasn't working for him, that he thought the, in the script it, it deserved a laugh and it wasn't getting it, he just worked it and worked it till he got that laugh. I, I, he was quite remarkable to watch. He'd also sit in the wings every night. I'd find him just sitting alone in the wings watching somebody else's performance. He was equally um, involved and invested in somebody else getting a laugh and someone else making the show work. Uh, he was a sublime worker yeah had had a great great experience working with gary can acting be described i'm very curious what is your definition of acting hmm. i think there's there's many descriptions yeah. and, and maybe some suit other people better and mean different things to different people look for me it's a moment where human behavior is accu- accurately re- represented and that's probably a, a scientific way of looking at it. <laughs> um, lots of things are there in the acting moment. There's lots of things there that are very perhaps mysterious and ephemeral. And I think what's more important is what is the audience's moment yeah. in the acting moment. I think that's where the magic is. We think the magic's on stage, but actually the magic is happening in the soul of the audience member. Because if that moment works for them, there's an, a beautiful, deep, emotional, spiritual connection between that actor, that audience member, and also the person that's been written about and the whole universality of human, the human condition. And that's an amazing coming together, mm. I think. And, and it does still happen in live theatre, I think, even more than in film. So that that flesh and blood and sort of oxygen connection that happens in live theatre doesn't happen often, but it it is sublime that there's a whole group of people on both sides of the footlights experiencing the the mystery, the depths, the the outrageous ludicrousness of being alive. Um, So in short, you can't really answer it, Mm. but I think I think we do get caught up in the fact that it's the artist doing it, but it's the actual chemical reaction is happening yeah. in the audience member. Yeah, I th- yeah. 
how we talked about you know before of uh, you know Gilgood and Olivia you know because you know, there's the the in a way acting becomes I think a, a mythology mm. you know but mm. you forget about the audience who are there at that that's night right. of the great performances that's you right know? that's right and mm. it's good to never forget the audience as an artist because it keeps that old ego out of the way mm. and it also reminds you of what the two of you have got to share that that there is a universality in all of us. And, and it gets you to a more compassionate performance. It gets you to a more accurate performance. I think it's very important. I, I used to talk and say to people, come on, I've paid money for this. I'm not getting my $40 worth. And that's a bit kind of um, facetious to say that. But in actual fact, that's what it is. An audience member has an expectation and we must fulfil that. Yeah. That's our goal. Absolutely. Plus, I wanted to say, what, $40? Who pays $40 these days for a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> um, who or what influences your work? Who? Um, well, first let me say that I, I don't actually see myself as a performer anymore. Hmm. No one believes me when I say that. I'm not quite sure why, but I'm, I'm not. Um, I'm certain of a few things in life, one of which is that I will die, and the other one is that... Um, I probably will never set foot on a stage again. I'm just done with it. And I can't kind of put it any other way than that. So to say who influences me, I would have to say that my students teach me and are my biggest uh, influence currently. Mm. So the mystery of how a young person approaches this new craft is fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, the dilemmas and the challenges of how to help not everybody but a group of individuals that's the hard part because everyone is different and everyone is carrying their own you know expectations and and, yeah. and reservations so i would say that just the individual acting student is my greatest influence yeah. and my greatest challenge but it, it's a very very stimulating activity this is i'm very interested because i i Again, doing my research, because there was a time where I think I read from 2000-something to 2014, you were teaching at WAPA, but then there was an announcement of your retirement, I, I believe, or something to that, words of that effect. Mm. But, but, um, but you're back now, which was wonderful, because how I met you, and if you didn't come back, I'd be you know, much more poor. You know, poor I, I left the full-time position ah, okay. in, the, in the BA course. Mm. And then I was invited back to start the new screen performance and then I linked with Fran. So I'm now teaching as a part-time teacher, but I'm teaching more than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> well, how come you have such a strong teaching association with WAPA? Firstly, it, it was I wanted a full-time job in my 50s. I wanted to move away from freelance acting anyway and that job was on offer at the time. It was a long way to go, Sydney to Perth. Yeah. It felt like a, a big move, and it was. I had been teaching on and off at Actors Centre and NIDA and various places on the east. But this was a, a big commitment. And I did find a spirit at WAPA that I, I found very attractive. I did find, a, perhaps it's to do with WA, that, that there's a freedom yeah. and a space and a, and a relaxation in the WA environment that I, I found quite refreshing. Yeah, and it was the teachers that had gone before me, I think I should pay homage to them, who, who made the place, you know, a spirit of collaboration, not competitiveness, 
it was about the student and not about whopper. So I found the place quite unusual and quite attractive. Mm. Every now and then, I think you do walk in to either a community or a mm. space or a family and you go, ah, this is nice. Yeah. And there's a spirit that's sort of even bigger than anyone that's gone before it. Yeah. And I think that's to be respected. There is a spirit of place in, in human communities. And I think Whopper does have that. Mm. It's really weird. One of the weirdest experiences, every time I get it, is when, because I'm not sure when, when you enter the building, as it were, I think it's from the side when you, there's this little cafe called Grindhouse for, for people who are interested when you visit there. But when you go through those big glass, or either side, these big glass mm. sliding doors, and when you walk through... The, the air is different and it hits, for me, this is my, when okay. I, the air hits me and there's something interesting. And when you walk down, you can either go left and you go all the studios or you can walk straight down. If you mm. walk straight down, you see the ballet dancers doing That's right. stuff. <clears throat> walk left and you go all the way down, you can see the musical theatre students, the That's acting right. students. And there, I just love it when it's quite busy and people running around and people are buying tickets at the box office and you've got, mm. you know, stay, you know, all the... All, all the people who are studying stage management, you know, moving yes. props. And I like it being in the centre when it's nice and busy and it's like, wow, you, you get quite a buzz. It's a wonderful factory, isn't it? Yeah. I think, too, that Australia doesn't have a performing arts academy of that mm. size anywhere else. It's quite unusual mm. because it's not just theatre. You know, it's all the performing arts. And it is still growing rapidly. I don't know how we're all being squeezed out the windows <laughs> just about um i'd love a new building but anyway yeah. um <laughs> it um it does overflow with with creative energy and from that creative energy is that there's a lot of joy you know there's um there's a lot of other challenges emotionally too but it, yeah there is an overriding joy there mm. that i think anyone's privileged to to walk around what is something that an actor needs to remember it's not about them. Huh. <laughs> That's the hardest thing. Yeah. Because you are your own instrument. So you're not just hopping up there with a, with a cello and off you go. <laughs> not, not to diminish the, the proficiency needed to, to play a cello at all. But you have to expose, you know, your own history, your own soul, all those really vulnerable areas and corners of a person's history. And that's really... I really respect actors for that. I think even if I wasn't an actor, I would, as a teacher, I would have a great respect for the sacredness of that. And anyone who's brave enough to want to even attempt it is to be respected, I think. Mm. And that's what I try to bring to the room, that, it, that it's hard in that area. I don't necessarily think the technique of acting is all that terribly hard. It probably is harder to play a cello. Yeah. But I think to get up there and forget that you might be criticised or you might make a mistake or you might fall beneath your own expectations. All those things that you're carrying as you hop on the floor, you know, is, is, is brave. Mm. So there are two things going on and that is to, you must forget yourself, but you almost, you also need to have a lot of bravery. I think that's maybe why I don't act anymore. That that bravery is just really, t- I'm, I'm exhausted from all the bravery. <laughs> Too much bravery. <laughs> Too much bravery. <laughs> what is a quality that an artist should aim for? An acting artist? It can be, yeah. Or I... performing artist, director, writer. 
Because um, when I usually ask that, you know, I think the recurring quality that, that, that well, for me, I think patience is one. Mm. Um, especially because I've just recently produced a, a show for, for the Perth Fringe World Festival called Soup. Right. And it's the first experience ever being a producer, also stage managing and, and assistant director. But, you know, coordinating, you know, the set and organising it and blah, 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 you know, and the money and yes. patience and relaxation. Yes, I yes. I think, for, for me... The... I think a lot of human virtues are always being asked of you. Oh, it's great that you did that. Mm. There's an endurance needed, isn't there? Oh, yeah. I think. I think if you're passionate and you get what artistry is, that you get that you're in there for this wonderful joy of sharing the human condition, if, if you get that at a deep level, you will endure. But you will need all those human virtues <laughs> time yeah. and time again. Patience, understanding, tolerance, endurance generosity, yeah. uh, humour. Uh, it's going, just going to be needed all the time. And, and I think the good news is that you get better at it. Yeah. So the next time you do it, you go, ah, I need to crack a joke here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it does get easier. <laughs> How do you handle stress? Not very well. Yeah? No, no. Um, it's a great question because we all encounter it mm. um, and everyone has a different way of dealing I think probably and and everyone it's one of those invisible problems isn't it that everyone's got their own level of stress and, and triggers mm. of stress it look it's very much to do with your self-belief as well I think stress I think stress kicks in when you doubt your ability to keep going or to overcome or to mm. go through something when, when you ask me this and I think about it, I think of all the lovely friends and people who have perhaps supported and comforted me in those times. So in saying how do I deal with it, I think I'm just very grateful that I have reached out or people have reached out to me and seen that I'm vulnerable and it's possible to keep going. I suppose, look, I'm 65 and I suppose I have realised that Everything passes. Mm. Everything's temporary. Uh, and what was a mountain an hour ago probably won't be the same mountain yeah. in an hour's time. And that is a hard one to learn. But I suppose at 65, I, I'm probably saying stress now to me is I'm a bit more objective and I go, ah, oh, I think I'm about to get really stressed about this. Okay, let's see how I can just... Um, patiently endure it or something yeah um i think um and in younger years a lot of people particularly artists might say um who am i what am i doing here am i worth this uh what is my place on the planet um do i keep going do i walk away i think those questions are bigger and more overwhelming um so again the good news about getting old is that it, it gets a lot clearer for you. I don't think the stress ever goes because I think the stress is wanting to to prove yourself and wanting to be useful and and succeed for the for the job for the project whatever. Yeah. Uh, we all want to succeed, so that never goes away. But as we were saying off off mic, I've just come back from India and um, 
my mantra now is nothing matters. When I witness a human civilization, community, nation enduring what they endure for whatever reasons, they've, they've had you know, two big empires dominate them and tough country and tough terrain. And um, I think I've just been witnessing a civilization that has such grace, nobility, artistry, mm-hmm. history, and most of them, 90% of them are walking around with nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, no house, no status, maybe no job. And they just take what, what the next moment brings with such nobility that I, I, I'm just a little bit overwhelmed by it at the moment. And it's brought, I've brought it back home here yeah. and gone, how can I make use of their wonderful example? And I can do that by just saying, you know what, nothing matters. Yeah. Nothing matters. It's okay. There are people over on that side of the world who have achieved such a spiritual strength that I just need to keep, you know, working up to that level. I thought, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because... We're very soft, us middle class people. Yes. But it's funny because I had this thought the other day, see, one of my jobs to make a bit of money or a bit of buns, as the British say... (laughs) <laughs> yes. Is uh, and it's actually a weird job. I, I, I clean a car park, and I just thought, and it's quite, it's quite, it's a sh- oh, it's, it's easy, you know, ninety minutes early morning shift. I, I talk to no one, and, and I meditate a lot and think a lot. Yeah, good. And I was thinking the other day, I was you know sweeping my, and I was thinking, it just this thought popped into my head, how, at any one moment, we could like I could take off my clothes as it were, and I could you know, and I I could not pay any of the bills. I can mm. and walk out of this well, and I could go into the wilderness, as it were. I, could. I could. That could be a choice. But I feel it, it's interesting how we're sort of forced, you know, to to be in the society, to have a government, you know, to we're sort of restricted and forced to yes need to buy a house, you know. That's the expectations. Yeah, I find that fascinating that you have these two choices of you. You don't have to have all these things. No, we don't. We don't. No. I think what I'm doing now currently is that I'm saying, how dead lucky am I to have all these things? Can I share them? Mm. Yes, I can. And with these privileges, how can I make good of it? Um, Because watching somebody like the Indian civilization, they make good of so little, Mm. but they make good of it. You know, so even if it's just an encounter with you, they make good of that. Um, Very respectful race. So, yeah, it's, it's just creating good all the time. Performing for a live, a live performance and then performing for a recorded performance. Mm. I, I'm very curious as to, to know if, if, if you think there is such a difference. Because, you know, there is so much, there is definitely so much literature regarding that, you know, theatre acting is completely different to film acting mm. or film acting is quite very close to theatre mm. acting. <clears throat> You know? Yeah, it is a seems to be a perennial question, probably for good reasons, because I think they are different, and I think it's tricky, because the two mediums are not static anyway. Mm. So what's being asked of people on celluloid changes, and what's being asked of people in theatre is changing. So the theatres are getting smaller, the theatres are getting more intimate, so the, the the classical stage delivery that happened 30, 40 years ago is not happening so much now. So it's if you like, it's getting closer to a film performance. Mm. 
And filming um, is also changing. I mean, when you look at something like NT Live, which is the recordings of um, the National Theatre, also opera and, and, and so many big theatre houses around the world are now recording the work. And we're watching a stage performance with a, with a you know, a sort of collection of cameras that are up their nose and, yeah. you know, quite close. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it still works. So it is a, quite a mysterious analysis, I think, of where the distinctions lie. As a performer, I think you've got to expose different things. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, technical tools are still needed for both. But I think what's going on inside is a little bit different. I think you've always got to know what your, act, what your audience is watching moment by moment, you know. Are they actually watching my heart and soul open up at this moment? Yes, they are. Then I'd better do it, mm. okay? If that's what the playwright and the play is wanting at that moment, that's my job no matter where the camera is or if the camera's not there at all. Uh, or if I'm trying to reach somebody at the back of the stalls. I think the job for the performer is to do the job in the moment. Mm. If I'm cracking a joke and I've got to make sure I hit the last word and that I've got to, you know, step on the banana skin at that moment, mm. then those techniques are still needed no matter yeah. if there's a camera there or not. But I think there are differences because... The camera will see any kind of false or manufactured execution. It picks it up so quickly, whereas I think a stage audience can forgive those yeah. slight technical moments more. But yeah, look, it's, I don't have an answer, and I think it is um, just something you, you keep learning and analysing as you go through. It doesn't mean you have to be better or worse at any one medium. A lot of people do seem to favour one medium mm. and maybe that's just to do with the kind of individual you are kind of artist you are it's also to do with with what your face is doing you know mm. some people's faces are red very easily <laughs> and the camera can go right in there and the camera can actually ask its own questions of what that face is doing and it's quite magical you yeah. know uh, and that person's going to work on screen whereas someone else might have a superlative voice and a superb, you know, vocal equipment that is just suited to heightened text, you know. So people are suited to things as well, I think. There's no easy answer. I find it interesting because you can go on YouTube and some people have pirated, they've recorded, like, live performances. And so watching, watching a recording of a live performance that's not meant to be recorded, I find that very mm. interesting. Mm. Some yeah. are terrible. Yeah, yeah, so the quality is horrible, yeah. but, but I just find that the, the sort of philosophy of that, yeah. But I think something like NT Live and the whatever the, the, the company that's employed to do that, yeah. I think the sophistication of their, of their camera work, uh, and I don't know what rehearsals um, take place, but they, they, they capture, I think, stage brilliantly. Mm. And also, sorry, I'm, I'm adding this question, because in terms of like perf uh, film performances a person that I find very fascinating was Bill Hunter because to my knowledge I don't think he did any stage work he did he did I did Summer of the 17th Doll with him really yeah yeah oh my god 
Yeah. Learn new things every day. Yeah. I, uh, I did not know that. Yeah. I thought it was solely. He didn't film. do much. He didn't do much. No, no. And and he was more at home in yeah. front of the camera. I think. Yes, he was. I think he found the length and breadth and sort of challenges of stage not as comfortable. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he's one of those film animals that mm. was very effective in capturing moments of yeah. Bill, especially with his eyes. Yes. Yes. With his eyes. And on that note, it is time I'm for sorry. No, no worries. Actually, that's a beautiful... <laughs> please turn off your mobile phones. Please turn off your mobile phones. <laughs> um, so, uh, time has run out, as signalled by uh, Angela. <laughs> Somebody wants me at a meeting. <laughs> um, so, Angela, a part of this, the Perfume Chronicles, this podcast series, yes. that you may or may not be aware, and... You may or may accept this invitation or not, but in the in ten years' time, in the year twenty twenty eight, yes, I'd like to revisit all oh, of my great. guests. That's a great I, idea, and I'd love to. Revisit Hope I'm still you. around. Yeah. Oh yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Um, in this capacity. Yes. And I, I, I'd love to. Let's see do how that. You, I'm, I'm happy do. to sign on the dotted line for that. Um, so, Angela, in the year twenty twenty eight. What would you like to uh, plug or promote or see happen in that year when we meet again? 2028. Do you mean what, what subject would I like to talk about? Or, or if, you, if, you, if you're inclined, maybe an autobiography or I, I don't know, or directing a play or... Well, I'll be yeah. 75, so I probably want to talk about oh. if I have any use or purpose in the arts at, at 75 years of age. That will be interesting. Wow. Of course. Absolutely. Let's do, let's do that. Okay, thank you so much, Angela, for being on the Perth and Chronicles. Thanks, Ryan.